Hello humans, hello humans. April 25th, it's around 9.15 a.m. or something. Wanted to talk language for a few minutes. Taking a coffee break out here in the brush cutting. Um, so yesterday we had uh, Don Limon uh, and uh, Tucker Carlson let go. Uh, uh, you know, along with... Um, uh, a few other people in at the Fox News in the last few days, and it's just uh, struck me as being a uh, having historical analogs that are worth uh, talking about here, right? And so we have um, um, if we thought of the uh, Don Lemon and, and Tucker Carlson as being the face of particular kinds of language at the moment, then we have analogs to this that occurred back in the 1930s. In the 1920s and 30s, we didn't have electronic media to the extent we have today. We had telegraph, etc., but they were inventing television and so on, but um, we had radio. But we didn't have the level of um, uh, instantaneous communication we have now, so things will progress faster now than they did in the 30s. Nonetheless, though, <coughs> it's really interesting as to how we are... Um, sort of echoing what's going on then in the, in the 30s in the actual language itself. So uh, of interest to me is the changes in the language that are uh, coming out at the moment. And we have um, uh, the potential that we're going to get in, that this is an echo of what occurred in 19, uh, I want to say 28, okay? So it's my contention, um, my premise here, that the language is reflecting a change in the activity of the Kazarian Mafia at this point relative to language. And so the Kazarian Mafia is hugely into language, they're into propaganda, all of this kind of stuff, the Tavistock Institute studies, uh, marketing and all that sort of thing, right? They know this down to in psychological operations. They know this down to the Nats' ass. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so whenever you see things happening within the media, it's not by accident. When a lot of big things happen all at once, you've got another 1928 kind of moment going on. In 1928, uh, we had some major changes in the uh, German media structure uh, that reflected what would be occurring or that, that pre uh, presaged what would occur between 1928 and 1933. So, uh, all right, so let's see. <clears throat> let's have a little description of our terrain. In the 1920s and 30s, uh, Germany was in chaos. They had gone through the Weimar uh, hyperinflation in 1923, and the government collapsed. <coughs> the social order uh, collapsed as well, in the sense of structure, order, regularity, uh, you know, justice, economy, banking, all of that. But people still had to do things. They still did things, and the German society kept going along. Everybody didn't kill themselves when the money went bad, right? But it took them forever to, to work their way out of it. In the process of doing so, if we look at the um, the newspapers, and just taking newspapers, uh, most of the radio broadcasts at that time were reflective of what was going on within the 
the uh, daily and weekly newspapers. There were more weeklies than there were dailies because of the cost. And it's uh, uh, sort of the analog to today's major uh, news media, right? So we could say that um, uh, Fox News is the equivalent of like um, uh, Berliner Zeitung, which was the main newspaper, right? It's um, uh, the Berliner newspaper, basically, is the name. And it had um, been started in 1877 and was cooking right along. And in the 1920s, it occupied a role, sort of, um, uh, similar to what Fox News does. Uh, Fox News is still progressive, right? Fox is still a progressive state uh, uh, um, station, uh, progressive network. And um, Berliner Zeitung, to a certain extent, was progressive. But anyway, so here's the situation. There were a number of major newspapers in Germany. Um, a lot of them came out of southern Germany um, and Berlin. Um, the newspapers could broadly be broken up into Jewish newspapers and nominally non-Jewish newspapers. Okay? So there were Jewish newspapers that were... Um, created for, writing was for uh, the Jewish community, it was circulated in the Jewish community, and not very widely uh, beyond that. And, you know, so like there was uh, Der Morgan. Now, Der Morgan was a little bit of an interesting Jewish newspaper because it was, it had a wide circulation up until it closed, right? Uh, outside of the Jewish community because it handled politics very well. There were some very influential thinkers, a lot of good uh, writers for it. And it had um, uh, some serious prestige that it had garnered by the nature of the people that wrote for it. So, so I became aware of it because of a guy by the name of Walter Benjamin, who was a writer in language and who had some uh, language and politics and literary stuff and all this kind of thing, um, but who, who had some really key insights in language and power. And uh, some of his work was later on... Uh, uh, taken in and inculcated into propaganda um, and how that all works. So um, so I became aware of him because of his impact on um, the discussions around language. And he was a writer for Der Morgan. He wrote for other newspapers as well, including uh, the Berliner Zeitung. Okay, So he was writing for... Now, the Berliner Zeitung was a uh, general circulation um, uh, daily publication... Uh, not for the general Jewish community, but like almost all the other newspapers, it was owned by a Jewish family. Uh, they were the Mosses. Um, uh, first thought as Moses, and then later on it was changed to M-O-S-S-E. Uh, uh, this family um, comes from... Um, No, hang on a second. That was the uh, Berliner Talkblatt, okay, the the uh, Berliner Daily uh, that was owned by the Moss family. It was the Ulstein family that created the Berliner Zeitung, okay, and so uh, they were Jewish, the Ulstein family, and they kept owning it all the way through the war. Uh, they were actually Khazarian. Okay, so here's where it gets into the tricky stuff. My contention is that the Khazarians have decided to change the language and um, are in another one of their... 
let's freak out and maybe sacrifice Jews kind of a thing, right? Because in 1928, we had a significant shift in the language, and all these newspapers uh, started attacking uh, uh, the Jewish community linguistically in in ways that led up to the um, the assumption of power of the Nazi Party in 1933, and then the shutting down of all of these uh, Jewish newspapers. Okay, they became illegal at that stage, and were all banned and shut down. Now, they were trying to counter the Gazarian language, but here's the thing. Okay, so the language of the uh, regular newspaper circulating in Germany, the nominally non-Jewish newspapers, were still owned by the Jewish community. They were just owned by Khazarians. Now, the Khazarians also owned the uh, some of the other uh, Jewish newspapers, but not all of them. So Der Morgen was uh, the morning uh, was uh, out of business in 1933, and it was owned by non-Khazarian Jews, right? These people were, were Jewish, but they're not in the club of the Khazarians, and they were hunted down and kicked out of Germany and all of that. Uh, Der Morgen is interesting because it had four really influential uh, writers, all of whom are Jewish, and all of whom had the same fate in the sense that they all wrote for this newspaper. They all wrote for other newspapers, including the Berliner Zeitung and all these other literary gazettes and that kind of thing. But these four writers, um, Walter Benjamin, the language guy, uh, Kurt um, Cholosky, I think his name was, uh, he wrote about, uh, mainly he did like plays and that sort of thing, but he was very much anti-Nazi, uh, anti-authoritarian, anti-Kazarian mafia. And then there was Ernest Toller, and Joseph Roth. Okay, now Joseph Roth came from a Khazarian family, and he, he kept in 1928 through 33, in the rise of Nazism, he kept pointing out all of the Khazarian connections to uh, the Nazi party. And here's the thing. He was talking about people he knew. So, there's a famous newspaper called Der Stürmer, The Stormer. Okay, it, it became the quasi-official um, newspaper for the Nazi party. It was started in the 19, 1923, I think. Almost at the height of the hyperinflation, this newspaper starts up. It starts up with this, by this guy, um, uh, Julius uh, Streicher. Streicher, S-T-R-E-I-C-H, I think. Anyway, he's an interesting character because he comes out of nowhere, but he comes out of a very particular nowhere, which is a place called um, uh, Fleinhausen. Okay, and that's in Bavaria. It's a little little uh, village in Bavaria, very nice. They've got some good cafes there. Uh, when I was there, they had excellent coffee. Um uh, but um, uh, Fleinhausen means flax house, okay? And it was uh, the whole village existed, used to exist, because of its um, nearness to a tributary to this particular river. And uh, they would uh, process the flax and turn out fiber. And so you find that uh, Fleinhausen in that particular part of Bavaria is the center of all kinds of money that was Kazarian money uh, that, that took from the... Uh, flax and cereal growing that was, uh, you know, they got their money from the, the flax and the cereal grains. 
uh, growing in Eastern Europe and Eastern Germany. And uh, it was concentrated in Bavaria because that's where a lot of the processing of the foods as well as the fibers was done. And then ultimately, there's this connection between Fleinhausen and all these newspapers. And you have to understand it was because of the connection to fiber, okay, to the actual plant fiber. That little whizzy noise is a um, hummingbird that's a little pissed at me. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, Streicher uh, came out of uh, Fleinhausen. He was just this little Bavarian kid that had extremely um, uh, anti-Jewish views. And this was because of what happened to him when he was a kid. Okay, so he was uh, basically assaulted and beat up by um, a gang, uh, a Jewish gang, that he um, uh, intruded on them in an illegal act in the hills of Bavaria, and they beat the crap out of him to the point that as a kid, maybe he was 11 or 12 years old, he ends up um, uh, crippled for life uh, with a couple of injuries to his legs that uh, really did impact the rest of his life. Now, he ended up being executed in 1946 uh, in the denazification programs that were run by uh, Roosevelt, uh, Churchill, and Stalin. Okay, except for Churchill, all Jews. Stalin was a Jew. Roosevelt was a Jew, right? Anyway, so it's just also really weird. But, but I'm, again, my contention is that the Gazarians have shifted the language, and this may be a prelude to them once again trying to uh, sacrifice the Jews in order to aid their own escape of the consequences of their acts for these last hundred plus years, right, or thousands of years, depending on how, uh, how far back we want to go. Okay, so Streicher starts Der Sturmer. Streicher comes from Fleinhausen in Bavaria, on the way to on the road to Switzerland, basically from uh, southern Germany, uh, he starts Der Sturmer in uh, Frankfurt. Frankfurt was the center of publishing, one of the centers of publishing, along with Berlin. Uh, he starts it with money from a buddy of his um, that he got um, the money in Bavaria. This guy was uh, Streicher was not from a wealthy family. He didn't have a lot of dollars at all, and he's uh, plumped in 1923. Uh, unexpectedly gifted with all this money, and he moves from Bavaria down into southern Germany into the flatlands and starts this newspaper that was very much anti-Jewish. And the people that 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 started that gave him the money, the people out of Bavaria, so he thought, um, were were prompting him to continue that anti-Jewish tirade within his newspaper, which he did from 1923 on. It was 1923 he started. And uh, he gets into the Nazi party and yada, yada, yada. Off we go with that. But what's really interesting is that ultimately, if you trace it, you find out that his money came from the Moss family, right? M-O-S-S-E. Um, which was, uh, Rudolf Moss was the, was the owner and the creator of the Berliner Tagblatt talk, um, uh, that was a very progressive Jewish um, uh a daily newspaper uh, out of Berlin. It was basically their version of the New York Times, whereas um, uh, the Berliner Zeitung might be thought of as a more conservative paper, right? It was not as progressive as the um, uh, the Tagblatt, okay, which uh, daily speak, right? Um, the day speak, the daily. Okay, but 
Rudolf Moss was an extremely progressive uh, Jewish guy uh, that en- ends up. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what his family was was. Okay, so he converts to Christianity in order to uh, uh, fit in with things. Later on, he's. Um, no, that was, sorry, I'm getting him confused with the, the Zeitung. Okay, so um, it was uh, Leopold Ulstein that uh, was the um, starter of the, the Berliner Zeitung, the Berliner newspaper. Uh, this guy gave money to his supposed rival, Rudolf uh, Moss. Now, it was actually the, um, the Ulstein family. It wasn't actually Leopold. He was the one, he started it in 1877, and his um, uh, children were running it at the time that we get into the 1920s. Um, and it was a pretty good empire. It was a very big publishing empire. So it had analogs to Fox News. Now, these are all analogs. They're, they don't swap over. But basically what happens is that Leopold's family, the Ulsteins, Jewish guys, uh, can uh, convert over to... Um, uh, or, or give money over to uh, Rudolf Moss, who had his family, uh, also Jewish, had started a newspaper. So two Jewish families starting newspapers. Rudolf Moss is very progressive with his newspaper, and he ultimately converts to uh, Christianity. Now, um, later on, the Nazis convert, uh, accused him of converting to Christianity in order to save his money, and they took his money and took his um, empire and all of that stuff anyway. So it didn't do him any good. But but he was the conduit for money from Ulstein over to uh, Stryker. So they were, uh, so Ulstein the, uh, had his hands in his own opposition. Uh, there's a lot of um, talk that Ulstein family also financed part of the Moss family's expansion to create uh, the Talkblatt, the progressive uh, version of the daily newspaper in Berlin, um, where where we find that uh, there was continuing work by uh, progressive uh, Jewish writers that would be the the equivalent of like Don Lemon. All right, in terms of the, actually much more. <laughs> no, they're not the equivalent. He's just a, a news reader. These guys actually wrote and and could think and shit. Right? He's just um, he can read. That's that's about it. Anyway, though. So, but we do find analogs in the language itself. Okay, so let's not get really confused here. Berliner Zeitung, uh, owned by the Ulstein family, um, which. They kept their newspaper. They didn't get denazified. They kept up into the 50s. They uh, uh, still had their their empire. They were Jewish. They had uh, some small issues with the Nazis, but mainly not. From the Ulstein family, we have uh, connections to those uh, Jews that worked for the Nazis, such as Soros and Klaus Schwab's father. So Klaus Schwab's father is related to the Ulstein family, um, from Berliner Zeitung. Okay, so he's deep into the propaganda all the way back before World War II. The family is, okay. Now, in um, the Tagblatt, uh, started by Rudolf Moss, was bought out in the 1920s by Jewish bankers. And they held it until 1929 uh, when they sold it to Ulstein. Uh, he actually, at that point, was uh, Ulstein had enough money um, uh, that uh, he was a major banking guy as well as running all these newspapers. Now, the Olstein family 
uh, came out of Bavaria. They came out of the Fleinhausen, uh, the same Bavarian village that uh, Julius Streicher came out of. And they end up financing him through their acquisition of um, Moss's uh, newspaper. Okay, so... um, uh, it's just really curious. I don't know why Streicher would take money from Jews if he had, and he must have known he was. Uh, it was, in fact, reported by other Jews in Der Morgen, um, both um, uh, Ernest Toller and uh, Kurt uh, Cholosky uh, commented on it or wrote uh, opinion pieces about it. So, so it must have been known at that time. Nonetheless, you didn't have the conspiracy... Um, understanding then that we do now. Chloe, no. So, any, anyway, it's just my point here that we're going to get a... Um, uh, that we've had a language shift that uh, yesterday marked with the firing of uh, Lemon and, and Tucker Carlson leaving, and he can go off and create his own billion-dollar empire really damn quick. Uh, you know, start rivaling Elon Musk kind of thing. Uh, But this is all reminiscent of a lot of the shit that went down in the consolidation and changes of the language in the 1930s. And it was actually begun in 1928. And if you go back and start reading articles uh, translated from the German, from these newspapers, and you contrast the stuff that's being reported in Der Morgen and some of these other Jewish newspapers. And there were like four or five of them out of Berlin that were just really on the the mark as to what was going on. And they reported on, I guess, the other aspect of uh, the Jewish community. So the Jewish community at that time had progressive newspapers, but they did not have a great deal of conservative newspapers. The conservative newspaper or conservative thought in the Jewish community at that time was somewhat restricted to individual writers. There were no um, platforms for it, if you will, right? It was a um, uh, an aspect of their individual work that brings certain writers out because they were commenting on what was going on in the Jewish community that they did not like, some of which seemed to point to them to this weirdness of... Uh, Eastern European Jews from Ukraine, a.k.a. Khazaria, uh, involving themselves with the Nazis and getting this whole thing going. Um, Obviously, the Jewish community at the time didn't like Der Sturmer. And so to have it reported that uh, it was being financed by, and a lot of the writing was being done uh, by um, uh, Ukrainian Jews uh, didn't go over well. So here's the thing about this, right? Um, as I say, there were these four writers, Ernest Toller, Joseph Roth, uh, Walter ben- Benjamin, who was just this great language guy and really did some key work in uh, what is language, how it works with humans, etc. And then also Kurt Cholosky. Um all these people came to a bad end. Uh, they survived the war. They were kicked out of Germany, um, you know, for being Jewish writers. They were forced to immigrate. Uh, one of them, I don't know which one, I can't remember. Maybe it was um, uh, Toller, Ernst Toller, or maybe it was Kurt Cholosky. Uh, but one of these four guys uh, was put in a concentration camp for, oh, three or four months and then uh, let out and told he had to leave the country. Uh, which he did. Um, 
maybe that was the one that one of the four writers tried to make it to um, uh, uh, America and uh, was turned back at uh, in New York and ended up having to stay on the steamship and went to Spain, where he was incarcerated in a Spanish uh, fascist concentration camp. Now, uh, he died there. And again, I'm sorry, I can't remember which one of these four. All of the, all four of these guys ended up being um, suicides. Okay, that's their official, except for one of them, it was, uh, I don't know if it's official or not, but three of them, it's their official cause of death. If you look into their biographies, they all suicided, supposedly. Um, and they all suicided mm, within a very short period, like within days or weeks of being um uh, of encountering officialdom. Uh, the one guy in Spain, another guy in Sweden, uh, he was in exile. He lived the longest, I think. He lived until like 38 or 39. Um, uh, so there, there was uh, one guy, okay, maybe it was a guy in Sweden. So maybe that was um, taller. One of, one of them in Sweden um, uh, had had uh, health issues. And so they say that that's uh, why he killed himself was for his health issues. But it was just curious that that he had been uh, visited in his uh, place in Sweden at that time by um, uh, what we can only assume are uh, some kind of Nazi officialdom, which is to say, you know, controlled by the Khazarians, right? Much of the Nazi empire was controlled by the Khazarians. We find Klaus Schwab worked there. We see George Soros worked there. You know, they worked for Hitler. Um, uh, there were a great number of Khazarian Jews working for Hitler that you just don't ever see these guys mentioned. You don't see the um, discussions about them. And it's like ignored and um, denied uh, by historians, but nonetheless quite factual. Anyway, so uh, I'm seeing some indications here locally. I mean, in the United States, um, and I'm seeing some just today in some other parts of uh, other countries. And I think that the Khazarians have, are really, really freaked out. And uh, I think the Khazarian mafia is just like uh, uh, kind of losing it. And in my opinion, the uh, language changes I've seen recently here uh, over this last couple of weeks and then uh, yesterday, as well as the uh, major changes in the face of language, um, Tucker and Lemon, uh, are are kind of like um, uh, signs on the uh, path, right? And I think we're taking a path that the Khazarians are going to want to have um, agitation against Jews uh, to kind of sort of give them a way out. I don't see how it does. I don't see how that's going to work. But the language, as I say, is very reminiscent of what happened uh, in the um, uh, shift in language in the Berliner Zeitung that took place from 29 and, th and through 30 as the rise of the Nazi party, even though the newspaper was 100% Jewish-owned, etc., etc., right? They could have at that time... Um, 
just simply done what the New York Times has done, so to speak, and they could have just not gone along with the Nazis. But they did. So sort of like Fox News maybe has caved to the U.S. government and got rid of Tucker for that particular reason in order to save their hide. Who knows what's going on there? But it is somewhat reminiscent of what was going on in these newspapers in Berlin during that time. Just curious, guys. Um, You know, I think everybody should be really paranoid. Um, But I think also that if I were Jewish, I would start really looking at the language that's being printed and to see what comes out. Uh, Bear in mind, the Khazarian Mafia, they don't consider themselves Jewish, right? They're all Satanists. And they know explicitly that they're hiding in the Jewish population. And they explicitly will sacrifice that population to save their own hide. I just think something like that is sort of shaping up here. And it may take a while to develop, but nonetheless, I find linguistic parallels um, between what was written in these newspapers in the 28 through 33 period of time and what we're seeing now, especially arising in these last few weeks. We've gotten some temporal markers that are uh, specifically elevating uh, intensity and uh, uh, shifting over emotions relative to uh, direct and tangential Jewish-associated linguistics. Anyway, i got to get moving. It's going to rain on his hair. i still got to get some brush cuts. So just thought to mention that, especially after yesterday. Take care and, you know, keep an eye out. Things are shifting. <laughs>